You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A special message for History Uncovered listeners. For the next two months, we'll be conducting a survey as part of the Airwave Network to help us to get to know you, your interests, and what you think of the show. You can find the questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. And as a special thank you, you'll be entered for a chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. Or you can click the link in our episode notes. Welcome to History Happy Hour, a special series from History Uncovered. It's the end of February 2023, and we've handpicked a few of our favorite history stories from this month. Today we'll be talking about a new study that examined Impressionist paintings and found that they may have depicted air pollution, the discovery of encrypted letters written by Mary Queen of Scots while she was in prison, as well as a number of monumental historic anniversaries, including the 110th birthday of Rosa Parks and the 100th anniversary of the opening of King Tut's tomb. And we'll also discuss some incredible stories from Black history that we published in February. I'm all its interesting staff writer Kalina Fraga. And I'm all its interesting staff writer Austin Harvey. And welcome to History Happy Hour. I got my uh, my my nice room temperature ginger ale. Perfect. Because we are recording this at one in the afternoon. But hey, if you're listening, feel free feel free to, to drink whatever you want to drink. I I don't I'm not in charge of you. Let's dig in and start with the story of Solomon Pearl. Solomon Pearl uh, just died recently, which is an mm-hmm. unfortunate thing. But he did die at 97 years old. So he had a, a fairly long life, um, which was very fortunate and and interesting and um, trying to think of the right term, almost defying fate. Yeah, it's an incredible story. It really is. For some context, um, Salman Perel was a, a German Jew living in Germany, and he actually posed as a member of the Hitler Youth during World War II in order to escape death, um, sort of in direct opposition of his father's urging, which was to always remain faithful to um, to always remain a Jew. And he instead followed his mother's advice, which was to live. Mm-hmm. He then released an autobiography in 1990 following a seizure he had in the 80s where he wanted to share his life story. That was eventually turned to the film Europa Europa, what I thought was really interesting about his story was the way he described his double life as almost schizophrenic. He said, During the day, I was a German youth who wanted to win the war. I sang songs against Jews and yelled, Hail Hitler. And at night in bed, I cried out of longing for my family. Yeah, it's like he developed two, had to develop two personalities. It was interesting, too. He wrote or he said, looking back on that time, how much love he had for the second person he became because that person right. like saved his life, even though it it made it really complicated for him after the war to kind of figure out who he was and to return to his old self. Yeah. And I'm sure there was a layer of guilt in there as well. And 
I, I believe he said it was almost obviously before the term existed, but it was almost like a form of Stockholm syndrome, too, where it seemed like he mm. almost actively rooted for Germany to win the war because he had to play that role so often and because their propaganda was so influential and powerful. Yeah, right. Because as but, part of the Hitler youth, he was going to classes and being told all of this stuff. Right. And he was only, I think, 16. Um, so young, yeah, young very guy much and, impressionable, very mm-hmm. much in a situation of intense indoctrination. Yeah. Have you seen Europa Europa? I've not. I've actually um, never even heard of it. But now I'm very curious because yeah. I would like to know more about his story. I watched the trailer. I haven't seen it either. But yeah, it's really an incredible. It seems like something that would happen in the movies and not real life. Yeah, for sure. So tragic passing, but something to be said about the fact that he lived as long as he did and mm-hmm. was able to share his story with the world. Yeah, you said he was 97 when he died. So. 97. Yeah, it's a pretty good amount of years. Yeah, I wow. only expect to make it to 40. So <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully a bit longer than that. I would I, ideally. Yeah. Well, someone who barely made it past 40, she was 44 when she died, was Mary Queen of Scots. (laughs) Oh, hey. Nice. Thank you. I had to look that up really fast. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) One of the news articles we covered this month was about these these letters that she wrote that she encoded while she was um, imprisoned by Queen Elizabeth. And the crazy thing about this story, I think, is that the letters were mislabeled and they were like sitting in an archive for years and then these, I don't know whether they were historians or what, but they went in to look at the letters and they thought they were something else. It was like a side project. And they were like, oh, my God, this is this is Mary, Queen of Scots. Oh, wow. And they said about like decoding them. And, you know, it's not like they were anything really juicy. It was like about her health and her enemies and, you know, her desired return to the Scottish throne and things like that. But sure. Yeah. But to get a firsthand account mm-hmm. when you weren't expecting that yeah. either, I think, is yeah, that's really interesting. They. Like you said, not really knowing what these things were and then be right. like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how often that happens. I've written a couple of articles in the last couple of months, not not letters, but it's like fossils that someone just forgot. It's just in a back yeah. room somewhere. And people are like, actually, this is really important, whatever this thing is. Like, this is like the missing piece. I, I covered one like that recently. It was about, um, oh, it was the last Tasmanian devil or Tasmanian tiger. But yeah, it was very much like uh, these bones or the skin or the fossil or whatever it was, was just literally sitting in a cupboard somewhere. Oh, wow. And then they were like, oh, this was just never categorized. But this is like massively important to our research. It's just wild. It happens all the time. And it makes you think, you know, what else is just tucked away right now? Letters or fossils or whatever. It's be all sorts of stuff. And that's stuff that's tucked away in museums or in collections. And then you think about like what might just be in someone's attic. Yeah, we wrote we had an article last year about this woman in Montana who had one of the, like the dead sea scrolls in her house. She had it framed on her wall. Oh <laughs> and she'd like been and she'd gone to Israel in the 60s and someone had given it to her and it came out that like oh this is like actually a really rare piece That's of the dead sea scrolls. So insane. Yeah, so you never know. Keep an eye on your friends and family's walls. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Speaking of things that hang on walls. A new study recently went back and examined Impressionist paintings from mostly Claude Monet and Joseph Mallard William Turner and sort of looking at the the hazy theme throughout these paintings and saying, was this just a stylistic choice or was there more to this? And basically the study found that sort of in contrast to what we typically think of impressionism as, which is usually a perception style, very much coming from the artist's perception of a time of a place, mm -hmm. they think there might have actually been a little bit more of a realistic approach taken with certain impressionist paintings and that the haze that became so characteristic of these paintings might have actually represented air pollution. Ugh, crazy. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, keep in mind, these guys were writing or, or sorry, they were painting during the Industrial Revolution at a time when the the heart of cities were were rife with factories and mm. pumping out coal. And and I know I, I mentioned this to you the other day, but growing up in Pittsburgh, we are often told of that time period when you could not see the actual sky mm. over Pittsburgh during the day. So it, it looked like night all the time in Pittsburgh at a certain point in history. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. About the paintings, um, because they do have that hazy kind of yeah. it's sort of romantic in that when you look at the paintings, this, but to think about it, smog makes you think about them differently. Right. And what I thought was really interesting was that they didn't find it like disgusting or anything. It was, in fact, Claude Monet wrote about his love of what they called London fog in a letter to his wife. He wrote, hmm. I'm working very hard, although this morning I really thought the weather had changed completely. When I got up, I was terrified to see that there was no fog, not even a wisp of mist. I was prostrate and could see all my painting done for, but gradually the fires were lit and the smoke and haze came back. So, wow. huh. right. They weren't even, it wasn't even an awareness of like, hey, this is terrible for us. This is, um, there was something almost romantic about it. But what I thought was really interesting about the study was that they focused on Monet and Turner specifically because neither of them had vision problems that hmm. would have influenced that sort of haze. And if you look at the trajectory of their paintings over the years, you can see that Monet in particular used less and less contrast in his paintings as the time went on mm -hmm. and other impressionists uh, similarly did the same thing and if you look at like a, a chart of the emissions over the years there's a direct correlation between the lack of contrast and the increase in emissions oh, so wow. they would have likely been painting more smog essentially oh jeez 
It's so interesting that it's like what you said about them seeing it as a romantic thing. And I wonder if that ties into people seeing like the Industrial Revolution as this great, you know, technology moving forward. Or Yeah, it was a, I mean, it was, yeah, yeah. It was a fundamental moment. And it's such a cool story, too, because it doesn't really change our understanding of history much. Like we're well aware now in the modern age that there was a lot of air pollution and the skies were filled with smoke. That mm -hmm. kind of changes our understanding of art history and what impressionism means. And the term they used in the study was polluted realism, <laughs> which I found really interesting because it's... Yeah, it's a good name for a band, too. It is a really good name for a band. <laughs> Very, like, Rage Against the Machine style. Right, yeah. But yeah, it was an interesting study. I don't know what... I don't know what inspired it. It seems like a very weird choice to focus on. Yeah, it's like they look at a painting and, and they're like, huh, that kind of looks like smog. Oh, maybe it was smog. Let's, let's dig into this. Check that out. Might have been something like that. But um, yeah, fascinating study one way or another. Well, our next story it was not a careful study at all. It was a complete accident. And it was, <laughs> it was the discovery of this pendant in England, which happened to date back to the, the um, era of Henry VIII. I guess I'll start by asking you if you have ever used a metal detector before. I haven't, but I really want to. Yeah, I feel like I have when I was a kid, but some people like love using them and they use them all the time. And this story starts with this guy in England who basically the story was that his dog died and he was sad he wanted to get some fresh air so he took his metal detector to his friend's property and was just like walking around and it started going off and so he started digging and he found this golden pendant in the ground and when he brought it to like local museums they were flabbergasted because it seemed to come from henry the eighth's era and it had um his initials and his his first wife Catherine's initials and like they studied it and they realized it's 500 years old it's 24 karat gold and it was there's some like mystery about it because it was it looked like it had been made very quickly so they thought maybe it was not meant to be worn so much but was maybe for a tournament or something but the cool part about the story is that so much about Catherine was destroyed because he didn't want to remember her after right. he went on and married five other women after right um, well, he literally invented a church that he could leave her right so. yeah 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 understandable so, that he not much it's about so her rare to find this stuff yeah yeah that is actually an insane find it's crazy the kind of the heartwarming part of the story is that in england there's a law where if you find a treasure like this a museum will buy it from you and you and the person whose property is will split the profits. So this guy and his friend are going to split the profits from this pendant. And he said he's going to just use it for his kid's education. Yeah, <laughs> that was nice. really sweet. Yeah. Do you know, did it say how much money they were getting for it? I don't think so. No, mm, that's probably for the best. Yeah, but it must be a lot for something. It seems like it's a priceless artifact. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, even just being a 24 karat gold pendant on its own would probably fetch mm -hmm. a decent amount of money. Yeah, and just how incredible. And, and they don't know like how it ended up in this field either. If someone had like, buried it at one point or dropped it or what the story is, they have no idea. What region of England was it from? Warwickshire. I don't know where that is, though. I don't know where that is either. I'm not. I'm not good at geography um, in the first place. Yeah, I'd be so interested to know, like, the story of how it ended up where it ended up, whether it right. was you know, stolen or whether, like you said, it might have been won in a tournament or like as a tournament prize or commemoration. Yeah, if it could have been maybe one of her supporters had it and just like yeah. held on to it after she was 
tossed aside or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's just that there's it's hard to did, know. Did she answer. have lovers on the side? I don't think so. She was pretty Catholic and okay. devout from what I know. Yeah, there's an interesting history there. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, everything he did, you know, is fascinating. It's strange. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very much fundamentally changed the entirety of England. Yeah, and the pursuit of having a son, which he did have, but his daughters became the most famous, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. It's just ironic. I guess history can be ironic like that sometimes. I feel like a lot of the time history is very ironic. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the times. I think like mo- the more I learn about history, which I've probably mm-hmm. learned more about history in the past eight months since I started working here than I maybe have in my entire life. I'm just like, wow, that is horribly ironic. (laughs) Isn't it great? Yeah. As we've been talking about the Titanic recently, so Mm -hmm. much irony from like, you look at quotes from beforehand where they're like, nothing would ever sink this ship. And (laughs) right. (laughs) Sorry. But hey, speaking of ship disasters, marking the anniversary, the 125th anniversary this month um, on February 15th was the 125th anniversary of the explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor, Mm. which is one of, um, I mean, obviously we say remember the Maine. It is a very, very prominent event still 125 years after it happened. Do you know much about the explosion of the USS Maine? I know the basic details of it. But you wrote about it recently, right? I did. Yeah. 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 So it's a little bit yeah. fresh in my head. But the funny thing is, I think beyond the basic details, there really still is not that much. Cuba was in a very interesting state at the time with ongoing revolts and revolutions. And mm-hmm. the United States was there. And it really, over the course of the next hundred years, was kind of the same situation between the United mm-hmm. States and Cuba. But yeah, while the Havana was parked there, a a sudden explosion set it off and they still don't really know what caused it. Some people suggested that it was a mine. Other people have thrown out theories over the years that there was some sort of sabotage at play, but there's not really any evidence for that. Hmm. It's still very much a mystery. Isn't there like theories that are just like an accident too, right? That it was like a boiler or something problem. Yeah. Could have been an accident, could have been sabotage, could have been, yeah, like they hit a mine, but there's no like definitive proof. There have been several investigations. Do they think it probably like wasn't Spain, though? Or is the mine theory like it was like a Spanish mine that I think? Yeah, the theory is it was a Spanish mine, but I and they I mean, they very much used it as an excuse to go to war with Spain. For sure. Yeah, Uh, it pretty much kicked off the Spanish-American War, but historical investigations um, over the years have not really found Spain to be directly responsible for it. Mm. It's pretty incredible. Like if this was an accident, just what it led to, which was, you know, completely changed the world dynamics, given how much territory (laughs) the U.S. was able to snatch up. And yeah, Cuban history as well. And yeah, definitely one of those things that beyond, like you said, the basics, I don't remember ever touching on it in school. Mm -hmm. And it seems like such a fundamental moment in uh, Western history. I feel like in my history classes in like high school, it would have been like, and then the ship exploded and that started the war. It wouldn't, they wouldn't have like gone into all these details about it. It Like in college more, because I took a lot of American history classes, there was more stuff that came up a bit more, but yeah. For sure, yeah. I took, I went to film school, so I did not talk about it much (laughs) (laughs) 
And look well, at me now. I have a degree in American history and French, so, you know, we did well. <laughs> Good choices. <laughs> Well, speaking of American history, the other anniversary we're marking in this episode is the birth of Rosa Parks. Yeah. Who's born February 4th, 1913. So 100 years ago. 110 years ago. 110 It is 2023 years ago. now. Yeah. I know. Feels like we're still living in 2013. At least 2020. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no time has changed since then. But yeah, she was born. She obviously had a huge impact on American history, refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus in 1955. You know what's crazy and I was reading about this to kind of brush up on the story before is that Martin Luther King was 26 when he started the Montgomery bus boycott with her and, wow. and others. I oh know God, he was so age. young. Oh, I know. No. And he I mean oh, he was really no. young when he died. I think he was in his like late 30s. Um wow. but yeah, he was really really young during the civil rights movement. Incredible. That is um yeah, that is inspiring and upsetting at the same time. Right. Being, yeah. being a few months away from 27. It's like god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, she she definitely changed American history, you know, less than a year later it was ruled that bus segregation was illegal and constitutional um and obviously that like set a a huge precedent yeah i mean that it's it's kind of built up more towards the civil rights movement and um that's why she's called the mother of the civil rights movement yeah i was gonna say like of if if you only know two names from the civil rights movement it's rosa parks and martin luther king so Mm -hmm. very much an important birthday happy belated birthday Indeed. We have another little uh, fun bit of black history, not not quite as monumentous, but um, this year is the hundredth year of the first all black basketball team. That would be the New York Renaissance, who Mm, formed on February 13th, 1923. Mm. I don't have much else to say about them, but I thought it was important to bring up. Well, our next anniversary isn't a sport, per se. sport of archaeology. The sport of adventure. <laughs> the sport of adventure, yeah. It's kind of crazy because these stories, like, you know, on the one hand, it's like Indiana Jones type stuff. And on the other, you're like, you just opened someone's... Anyway, the story <laughs> yeah. is that... The story is Howard Carter, who's a British archaeologist, opening King Tut's tomb for the first time. Yeah. And it, unleashing the curse. Unleashing the... Actually, a lot of people from this expedition, like, did... I know, in very weird but... circumstances, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, he was like, he'd been looking for a long time for, I can't remember if it was Tut's tomb or just like a tomb. And he was on the last year. He only had like one more year of funding. And then he found this and it, he walked in and he describes how inc- he's, he has this description of like hot air, like rushing out of the chamber and the haze. And then how he suddenly could see, you know, statues of animals and just gold everywhere. And obviously like King Tut's mask is very famous and has been uh, exhibited around the world. It is like you said, though, it is kind of funny. It it is so glorified, like like this specific type of archaeology, that very early 1900s explorer with the the explorer cap on and probably a monocle. And um, (laughs) yeah, like and then just but it is kind of just glorified grave robbing at a certain point. Yeah, I know. Like these these tombs like, were not meant to be open. They were very convoluted with like, there's a reason there were a lot of traps and things to protect sometimes, the dead. 
I think about this about like archaeology in general, and I'm always fascinated about what people find. But you know, a lot of it's like just digging up someone's grave and being like, oh, and they have like a like a nail through their head. I wonder why that is. And you're like, right. Oh, <laughs> like I do too. I also wonder why that is. But hmm, releasing all sorts of bad. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. Very much not was not the intention um, when, right. when these people were buried. But, you know, we learn a lot. So there's something there. Um, yeah. The next- yeah. I'd love to go to Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I would I would also love to go to Egypt. There are so many places in the world I want to go I, to derail the, the topic of conversation for a moment. Where if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you want to go that I haven't been to before? Uh, no, I'll say if you if you've been there and you really want to go back. I think that counts. I think I would want to go somewhere new. I think I would want to go to like Japan because I haven't been to Asia at all. That was going to be my answer as well. I would love to. Oh, go yeah? to Japan. Yeah. yeah, I think, I think Japanese temples are so beautiful. Mm. I would love to visit some of the temples in Japan. Not for yeah, religious reasons, though, just to see them. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do like I want to do that and like the hot springs. And mm-hmm. um, I want to go to like Hokkaido and because I think Sapporo beer is from there and like go there and then go to a hot spring. And I have a case of Sapporo beer in, in our basement downstairs. Oh, nice. It's like my favorite beer, which is so... <laughs> Speaking of King Tut, did you know that he has a cocktail? That I I actually did not know. I have a whole book on cocktails and I flip through it every now and then, but this either was not in there or I've just not gone to that page. I think it was probably not in there because it was made for a special occasion in Ontario when a King Tut exhibition was passing through. It was at the art gallery in Ontario Mm. and a, a hotel bartender made up the King Tut martini. And he said it had to have one ingredient in particular, which is Goldschlager. Do you, do you know oh. what that is? <laughs> I, do, <laughs> I do know what Goldschlager is. That was, um, oh God, that was like one of those, like the dive bar I went to in college. We thought we were being cool by ordering shots of Goldschlager the one day. Oh my um, God. It basically just tastes like fireball, but it, the shtick with it is that it has like gold flakes in it, <laughs> like actual gold flakes. Awesome. I have some yeah. memories. Well, not, I mean, I guess I don't have memories because I was drinking gold schlager. You know what I mean? Like I have memories Fair of enough. forgetting yeah. my night. <laughs> yeah, it's, it says, I had never heard of it before, but yeah, real 24 karat gold and it's hot cinnamon flavor. So yeah, it does sound like yep. fireball, but like fancy. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fancy. I mean, no, that, that is kind of what it's supposed to be. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, this one, it has, is it Goldschlager? Goldschlager, um, vodka, butter ripple liqueur, which I've never heard of either. Uh, yeah, I've never heard of And cranberry that. juice. So, yeah, that's it. Uh, that's the King Tut Martini. It doesn't sound bad, though I don't know what butter ripple liqueur would taste like. It seems like a weird combination of flavors to me, but I imagine it, it probably looks pretty with the gold. Yeah, I mean, the, the cranberry with a little bit of gold in it, very, like... Yeah, very regal yeah. and pharaoh like. Like a rose gold iPhone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when they launch those, it's like exactly what it looks right. like. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, cool. Well, if anyone listening wants to make the King Tut Martini at home, it does require some specific ingredients. But other than that, it's only four things. Yeah. So. And it's very simple. It's just, yeah. A co- all you need is a cocktail shaker and you can make this happen. Or just like, a glass and some teaspoons if you don't want to get a shaker. <laughs> no, I guess you do oh, need that, a shaker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers.
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Well, we skip ahead about 70 years from the last two anniversaries. Um, mm-hmm. this, this happened three years before I was born. Add a little perspective. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, actually, I did not know about this mm. event until we talked about or like discussed what we were going to talk about today. Obviously, you and I were it's both kind of alive overshadowed when. But yeah, I was going to say yes. you and I were both alive for the September 11th, 2001 attack. Um, uh-huh. I don't remember that day in particular. Do you have any memories of September 11th? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was only I think I was in fifth grade then, but I was on the West Coast. So it was later in the morning and we all knew something was happening like on the school bus. We knew the adults were concerned about something, but I didn't really realize the gravity of it until much later in my life. But this event, which I don't think we've actually said what it is, less than a decade before that happened, there was another bombing or another terrorist attack. Yeah. Uh, what? February 26th, 1993, which mm-hmm. actually, oh, my God, that's my girlfriend's birthday. Oh, like like the day. You can tell her that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm going to have to go let her know. Happy wow. birthday. And did you know? Geez. Yeah. So February 26, 1993, there was a, a van bomb went off in the parking garage of the World Trade Center's North Tower, mm-hmm. which, yeah, I, I never knew about this. And then it's so interesting when you look into it. Yeah. In 1996, they discovered that there were Al Qaeda connections. The The main culprit main suspect in this investigation the main person they investigated was named ramzi yusuf his uncle paid him and the other terrorists who planned this 660 million dollars to do it his name was khalid sheikh muhammad he was yusuf's uncle that Mm -hmm. guy was seen as the chief architect behind the september 11th 2001 attacks as well yeah so he had this fixation on those buildings, it seems like. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting to see there was like uh, not even like a subtle warning about what could happen if the U.S. continued to not give in to terrorist demands. Um, a very blatant mm-hmm. like, um, use yeah. of uh, apparently mailed letters to newspapers with three demands. Uh, the first being that the U.S. must end aid to Israel. Second, the U.S. must end diplomatic relations with Israel. And the third being the U.S. must pledge to end any inter, inter, eh, blah, blah. the U.S. must pledge to end any interference with the interior affairs at any country in the Middle East. So mm. three very explicitly spelled out demands that obviously were not given into. Um, I won't cite a political opinion on that one way or another, but yeah, fascinating to think that this target was painted and these threats were made so many years before 
the event that is, I mean, one of the landmark events in American history. Right. Yeah. I think I probably learned about it because I was I was only three when it happened, I think. So I wouldn't have been like aware of it going on. Yeah. But I think I learned about it watching documentaries about 9-11 later. And this was always pulled in as like before the attacks happened, this other smaller attack happened. You know, only six people like died in this attack. But the way that they planned it, they hoped that the bomb would knock one building into another, which could have killed a quarter of a million people right. in New York. Yeah. Insane. But they envisioned it being a much bigger attack. So then when you see it that way, it makes sense that this was a precursor to the more right. terrible and more infamous attack. Yeah. Right. Sort of the the test for it, if you will. And then they've said, okay, yeah. well, that's not going to work. So what can we do instead? Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Um, yeah. It's weird. You know, I live in New York now and I don't know if you've, if you've been to like the memorial and stuff. Have, you've been yeah. To, yeah. yeah. They did an incredible job with it. It's very uh, impactful. Our final um, anniversary we'll touch on is this crazy story about this young woman whose body was found in in a water tower at the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, Elisa Lamb. Do you know this story? I do because I remember seeing because th- well, this only happened ten years ago. So at that point, I yeah, was, I was sixteen ten years ago. That's math. Mm-hmm. That's easy math. Yeah, and I I remember seeing the video of her in the elevator when it first came out. Right. And I, I I've always had an interest in like ghost stories and paranormal yeah. things like that. So that was obviously one explanation for what was going on. Um, right. This was the weird thing about the stories that her body was found in the water tower, which was weird on its own. But then they found this footage of her in the elevator looking as if she was being chased or she was looking in the hallway and acting erratically. And, yeah. you know, the one possible explanation is that she was taking a lot of medication for various uh, mental health reasons and this could have been some kind of break but the whole story got blown up even more than that because this hotel is so infamous and like all this right. weird stuff that happened there um before yeah i think the cecil hotel is one of the most if not the most haunted hotels in america yeah it's definitely up there i think uh richard ramirez the night stalker serial killer i believe he mm-hmm. like stayed there and like walked in covered in blood or something at one point like, yeah there were a lot all sorts of, of crazy stuff famous people who stayed there as well yeah. Um, yeah. The Cecil, you, I mean, I was going to say you could read, people have written books on the history of the Cecil Hotel and it's, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's crazy. No one really, I mean, I guess the assumption is that she probably went up there herself probably and like fell into the water tower, but mm-hmm. it's unclear. And it's like, how did she get up there? Why did no one notice what was going on in the elevators? All these questions about it. So it's a very eerie anniversary yeah. for, yeah. One of those kind of lingering unsolved mysteries. Well, that wraps up like the the anniversary part of this episode, but we also wanted to talk about Black History Month, which is February. These events aren't like, yeah, directly correlated to any specific anniversary or anything um, news related, but they are just stories we've covered recently in Mm. honor of in recognition of Black History Month. Um, But they are both incredibly fascinating and pop culturally relevant as well yeah that's right they both have connections to movies um well the first one is about a guy whose name was solomon northup and if you've seen 12 years a slave which came out i think in 2013 yeah i watched it as part of my film school education oh did you okay yeah i watched it as well just because it was there but it's amazing 
how true the story is. Like, it's all based on this guy, Solomon Northup's memoirs, and the movie is very loyal to his story. Like, it makes mm-hmm. a couple of changes, but the general story is the same. He was kidnapped, he was brought south, he was sold into slavery, he had these horrible overseers and saw some really horrible stuff and then was eventually... Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, but, you know, rescued in part by an abolitionist who happened to be uh, passing through and who figured out who he was and they worked together and he managed to escape or to be to be released. Yeah, it's I I wrote the article and like I read uh, segments of his memoir and it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear those firsthand accounts, um, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, uh, nearly. 200 years removed from the Civil War. Not quite yet, but a century and a half, roughly. Um, mm-hmm. Which is not that long, really. It's really not that long. history. It's yeah. not at all. And it's so... I think sometimes when we read about history without getting those firsthand accounts, like if you just read um, the history books they provide in school that are very cursory overviews of things, mm-hmm. you, you kind of miss the empathy part of it. Yeah. And then you read something like the story of Solomon Northup and, and from his own words, get that perspective and you realize like how truly horrendous some of these events and the ways people were treated. It was just like uh, inhumane to the highest degree. Right. One of the crazy things about his story is like he came back north, he published his memoir, and he was so famous. And then he just disappeared. And no one really knows what happened to him at the end of his life. What I read was like, there's a possibility he was kidnapped again and sold back into slavery. But no one's really sure. He just kind of he just kind of disappeared from the historic record. And like when his wife died and said she was a widow, but there's no no one really knows what happened to him. Yeah, I think it's wild. Yeah, that's very strange. But his memoir is a really incredible story. So I would highly recommend it. And I'm sure you can buy it, but it's also free online. It's in the public domain. Yeah. Yeah. The other the other story we wanted to touch on is also a movie, uh, the movie Glory, which I haven't seen. I also haven't I don't know seen if you Glory. Have. Okay. I have not. Um, but yeah, that is the story of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, uh, an all-volunteer regiment of all-black soldiers who mm-hmm. fought for the Union uh, during the Civil War, which, from what I gathered, they were only the second all-black regiment yeah. to fight. But Yeah, uh, it was, yeah. I mean, during the Civil War, like, at first... If you were black and you wanted to fight, you couldn't. It wasn't allowed. And then with the Emancipation Proclamation, they opened up. Um, you could enlist. And in Massachusetts, they're like, yes, like we want to form an all-black regiment. There were not a lot of black people in Massachusetts, but they came from all over. And some of them were former slaves. Frederick Douglass's sons joined this regiment, and they went to fight in South Carolina. They had a, a white commander because you know they didn't allow black people to become right. commanders then. He was a young guy. He was 25, I think, Robert wow. Gouldshaw. He was young and led them, and they had this kind of doomed attack on Fort Wagner. But their bravery during the battle made people, a lot of people, reconsider what they thought about black men fighting because they clearly fought so bravely and so fiercely. Right. Well, yeah. And of course, I mean, it's, you know, they were fighting for their own freedom and for the freedom of people who were like them, um, mm-hmm. which I, I mean, there's a different level of passion when you're fighting for yourself and for those like you, as opposed to being a white person fighting for the lives of black people who you very clearly still don't view as equal to you because it took another hundred years before they were even remotely considered equal. And obviously there are still problems today with equality. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, people, yeah, people had different motivations for sure during the war. You know, the thing with, with their commander, Robert Gould Shaw, is he was killed during the battle, um, and the Confederates buried him with his soldiers, and they wrote to his parents, and they would try to insult them by being like, we buried your son with, you know, these black soldiers. And his parents were like, great, that's the best place in the world for him to yeah. be. That's where he would have wanted to be, which is cool. I mean, one of the there's a lot of really great stories that came out of this regiment, and one of them is this guy, William Harvey Carney. At one point, he was fighting in the battle with his his fellow soldiers, and the flag bearer, like, fell. And he rushed forward, and he grabbed the flag, and, like, despite being shot several times, like, got it back to Union lines and was eventually, not immediately, but eventually awarded the Medal of honor for that so yeah there's all sorts of heroism that emerged in this from this regiment and there's a statue in boston of of shaw and and his men but i think the detail i remember is that like it had the names of the white officers who died on it but not the black soldiers for a mm. long time i think like until the 1980s or something Jeez. crazy like that um and in the movie glory matthew broderick plays robert gold shaw but even though there were all these like incredible black men in the regiment who they could have portrayed they were all fictional characters in the movie so that's a weird choice i think but yeah 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 but the regiment was like you know despite losing the battle like they just it's a really incredible story i think from the civil war especially yeah yeah because another one of those things that kind of often gets glossed over you think there are a few key battles gettysburg mostly mm-hmm that we really hone in on. But then, yeah, there are these like smaller stories like this. Same thing I yeah. said with North of it's like you 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 lose some of that historical empathy until you read stuff like the flag bearer goes down and then he picks it up. And it's like, oh, yeah, for a sure. real that's testament most, to bravery. Yeah, that's where the most fascinating stuff in history is, is these individual stories of people, you know, not not these big overarching events or anything, but these human moments where that's what I really enjoy about. No, no, I agree with you. I think, yeah, that's easily the best part about what, what you and I do is like learning those individual stories. Yeah. I think that's something we really seek out too, is these sort of overlooked stories from history, which is cool. I get to learn a lot. We both do. Yeah. 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 It's nice. And hopefully uh, anyone listening to this learned something today yeah. and is, <laughs> you know, curious to, to find out more about it. Um, I mean, a good starting point is to, watch 12 years a slave if you haven't that's a very accessible easy way to kind of start to get into these kinds of stories yeah for sure that's everything um major that we had for this history happy hour the inaugural history happy yes. hour ironically not a lot of happy events <laughs> to talk about but <laughs> no that's true do we have any on this list the um, main the first all black basketball kinda... team rosa parks yeah, was good. born king tut's tomb is arguably happy yeah i mean that was a big deal i guess it was important it's important we some interesting news stories grim. they weren't yeah i guess the news stories are more happy yeah, yeah. but hey that's yeah. why it's a happy hour so <laughs> if you need to pour yourself a drink <laughs> Go ahead. Raise a glass. Go right ahead. But yeah, we'll be back next month. And right. And yeah, we yeah, we'll be back next month with another one of these. I mean, we're doing the other individual podcasts in between. We have an upcoming series on the Titanic that you and I have mm -hmm. been working on, which is yeah. hopefully going to be exciting. Of course, you know, if anybody wants to dive more deeply into some of these stories we've talked about, they are all available online to read at all this interesting mm -hmm. 
Um, so absolutely go and check those out. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. Quick reminder once again to check out surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave to take a short questionnaire and help support the show and be entered for a chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Once more, that is surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.